Welcome to episode 150 of Crash Chords Autographs. I have a very special guest for this milestone episode. But first, before we get to that, I as always want to thank my patrons for their endless support. You can also show your support by going to patreon.com slash stormageddon and help me out there. Um, you'll get a thank you on this very show, as well as a ton of really awesome and cool stuff that is available there. So a quick thank you to Rob, Frankie, Emily, Greg, Rocco, and Case. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. If you can't do anything at Patreon, a like, a subscribe, a share, a retweet, literally anything to share the word of this show is super helpful but enough about that my guest for episode 150 is a true dear friend an incredible actor singer mc writer director brilliant nerd and a man i love so so much i'm so excited to have the incredible abe goldfarb on the show i've been wanting to have him on for a while we get to talking about all of the plethora of things he gets to do to be silly for money is just such a really exciting, fun, and joyous episode to make. I hope you really enjoy it as much as I did doing it. Here's me chatting with the incredible, brilliant, and unbelievable Abe Goldfarb. I try to make these conversations as easy as possible because, I don't know, I've listened to a lot of interviews where folks are stiff or just answering Q&A, and I'm like, those are fine, but it's right. just, I, you know. Also, like, I actually know you. You were at my wedding, so I feel like... Yes, I was you at your were, wedding. I was, what, uh, I was you stalling were? for time. Oh, my God. Wedding. Sarah Sarah still feels bad about it a little bit. Just because <laughs> oh, no, no, we no, had she doesn't need to feel bad. That's silly. No, 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 no. It was... No, 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 no. Listen, I've done I've, I've done crowd work before. Very rarely, and that's what I said. Very like, rarely PG crowd work, which it, which it by necessity had to be. Listen, you have a yarmulke on, and there's a certain family friendly expectation. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, but like, it's funny there are very actually... few comedians who work blue in a yarmulke. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because the wedding actually came up with my last guest, which will be the episode before yours goes up. My friend Kathy, who's an actress, she was at the wedding and like oh. just talking about her. Her friend group was like really supportive and like I was glad that they were at the wedding. I didn't really know them as well back then. And she's like, are you kidding? It was the best wedding ever. And so I was like, I'm going to have a twofer. I get to talk to the MC from our wedding. Like you've done a lot of great stuff. Good for you, Beetlejuice, whatever. You were the MC at our wedding. The big Literally time. the entire theme of your podcast <laughs> is like people who were in some way involved in my wedding <laughs> right exactly that's yes. the whole concept from now on we're getting we're getting super meta um listen you, but you no. need a theme everybody needs a theme obviously yeah. i mean i think that's that's what we're all really looking for um <laughs> so anyway uh with that i don't know how much of this pre-roll nonsense will end up in the full episode who knows i always it's always a crapshoot when i'm in the edit but sure, that said sure. Abe Goldfarb, a.k.a. Bastard Keith, I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Um, we have been friends for a while now, and I've been a fan of your work even longer than that. And I'm just really excited that you can take the time to chat with me today. Oh, my God. It, it's it's my absolute pleasure. I've barely spoken to anyone in three months. So this is <laughs> this is really so, a treat. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I can help you on a personal level and a professional level. That's what I'm really I'm here to do. Thank you. 
<laughs> I'm trying to get some of that Stormageddon juice on my career now that there's no work. Uh, hold on. I'm going to I'm gonna do something a bit loud. I don't want to ruin the recording. I'm opening a celery. Excellent. Oh, do you know what a celery is? I don't. Please tell me. Celery. My God. The pleasures you've been denied. Uh, celery is celery tonic. It's it's celery soda. Oh my god! Does it come it's, in flavors? Well, no, that's the flavor. Celery. The flavor is it's celery. It's like sweet, crisp, dry celery soda, and it huh. is it is quite simply the king of sodas. That sounds amazing. Mm. I didn't even know it existed until just now. Back in the day, it was known as the Jewish champagne. <laughs> it was. That's amazing. Because at non-alcoholic gatherings, you could still serve celeries <laughs> to the guests. I'm going to have to assume, I'll talk to Sarah after the recording, but she must know. Being the daughter of a rabbi, this stuff must have been everywhere. I, I have to like assume. If, I'd like to think so. If you've ever been to like this, you know, the stage deli, yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's there, Dr. Brown's. <laughs> Though cel- celery is one of their less popularly carried uh, varieties. Well, for reasons you know. that are beyond me, it's it's fucking delicious. <laughs> um, well, now that you have a drink, we're really ready to go. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to start by actually talking about how um, how Beetlejuice came to be. For those who don't know, um, Abe is a very talented actor, writer, director, singer, performer, and one of the most awesome things I got to witness as your friend and a fan is watch you go for it and then find success with your incredible run with Beetlejuice being a part of the ensemble and having a few standout parts during the show. How did that all come to be? That's very, very kind. Um, The way it came to be was I was about to pretty much hang up my hat as far as musical theater. I just wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't having a good time. Sure. I was incredibly unhappy. Uh, and you know, I was, I was doing pretty well in commercials and doing some voiceover stuff. I mean, I loved, I loved it. And, and I mean, musical theater, I love so much, but my experiences with it just weren't making me happy. And I was, I actually said this to my manager when she sent the audition, I said, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm feeling kind of burned out on this stuff and I mean, probably not even going to get it. And she said, no, you're going, you're going to this. This is a good match. Go. And apparent, I mean, I, I'd gone in for Alex Timbers, the director, who was a genius and a gentleman, mm-hmm. for a couple of other shows. I'd gone in uh, for Peter and the Starcatcher. I'd gone in for a show called Up Here that he did, he did out in La Jolla. And, and I believe, yeah, oh, yeah, I went in for Rocky for one of the supporting sort of ensemble things in there. And he kept calling me in. And the thing that I didn't understand, <laughs> which is ridiculous is that when a director calls you in several times for different shows and doesn't hire you, it doesn't mean he thinks you suck. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It it means he's looking for the right thing to to work with you on. Yeah. And Beetlejuice was such a great match right off the bat. Uh, You know, they, they sent me the material and I went in for the audition. And the Beetlejuice material honestly sounded in my head like burlesque MC stuff. Yeah, totally. And so I, when I went into the room, that's how I treated it. And it got laughs. And the songs they gave me to sing, which were, you know, you saw the show, they're great songs. Oh, unbelievable. I treated them like, you know, opening numbers in a burlesque show, and it seemed to go well. But I still figured there's no way. 
because uh, this wasn't even for the Broadway production. This was for down in Washington, D.C., the out-of-town tryout. And I got through one round of callbacks and another round of callbacks, and then they said they put me on a uh, on a very strong hold. <laughs> and I was like, I was <laughs> like, okay, so I, I, it means for a couple of weeks, uh, you don't know if you've got it, and then you don't have it. Uh, that's right, my okay. that's my experience with being with having a hold on you but like it was i pretty much gave up on it i figured you know i had a great time the auditions were tremendous at the last uh callback i basically tanked the, da- the dance portion oh wow well i can't i'm not a good dancer i'm really bad at it and there was a tap thing i mean the one reassuring thing was that at that last callback i went into the i arrived at uh, chelsea studios and in the hallway was just a panoply of the most pornographically attractive human beings I've ever seen in my life. Just like a bunch of astonishingly in shape dancers, men and women, and and hair perfectly done, makeup on point. And I thought, oh, fuck, I am not getting this. And then I saw a small collection of like, you know, middle aged guys who don't look, <laughs> you know, the non-dancers, the indoor kids. Right. <laughs> and uh, and i thought oh good these this is my people and uh and you know the the singing and the dialogue went fine and then i tanked the dancing and i thought well that's that and then i got the call that, so that they awesome. wanted me to go down to dc with the show for the out-of-town tryout and it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life and this was a very different show from what you saw on broadway okay it was extremely different well, I heard you'd said that. I remember when we you, when we chatted with you after the night we saw you that it was way dirtier. The original version. It was it was decisively R rated <laughs> uh, down in DC. There was there was one onstage death, one implied offstage death. I mean, both of them were you know murders. I say death. They were murders. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot more swearing. Beetlejuice's sexual harassment was turned up to twelve, and. Uh, I mean, there's so much good material from it, though, which is amazing. Uh, like when Beetlejuice talks about becoming alive, there was a line in there that I loved so much when he was he says, um, I want to be alive and I'm not going to waste it like you losers with your car payments and your PTA meetings and your how much Bush is too much Bush. It was <laughs> pretty much that kind of material all the way through. Uh, yeah, it was not a PG-13 show, which it is on Broadway. Yeah. But, you know, we had the writers in the room every day. Uh, Anthony King and Scott Brown, who did the book, and Eddie Eddie Perfect, who did the music. And, you know, I, I'd never been in, through the experience of being on a mega-budget production where they just... I mean, they are revising every single day. And then, theoretically, when you've, like, put the show up, they're still revising because you have a preview period. And so the flexibility of that... I mean, I started learning my lines... Because I, understu- I was hired for, uh, the understu- for, the, for the ensemble. Right. Which means, you know, throughout the entire show, I'm basically just playing a bunch of little parts, being in the dance numbers. And and then I was the understudy for five roles. Wow, it was five in total? Holy hell. Beetlejuice, Adam Maitland, Charles Dietz, Otho, and Maxie Dean. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. And I started learning my lines early on, and then I was told, don't learn your lines now. Because <laughs> if you learn them now, they're going to be the wrong lines. And lo and behold, I mean, before we even got to New York, the script was like, 75% different by the time we really went up down in DC. It was incredible. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I I mean, 
so like I got to see the show last year. Um, we went, Sarah and I went, we uh, reached out to the box office for the possibility of tickets the day of on our anniversary, and we ended <laughs> up getting them, which was awesome. And like it just felt such kismet to go see the MC of our wedding. On, in his Broadway <laughs> debut show on our anniversary. And then you... I was so happy to see you there. I was so oh happy. Oh, my God. And then you graciously took us backstage. And, like, I was like a kid in a candy store. You showed me the giant sandworm that comes out in the, in the final half. And, like, it just... <laughs> let's, like, not, it, let's not overrate my kindness here. It's the literal <laughs> least I could have done. <laughs> but, I'd like... Say, I hit a very, you know, low to mid-level bar with this. It was like being in a world of magic. And, like, I'm not being superfluous. Like, just, I, I've seen a lot of Broadway. And a lot of my theater knowledge comes from my incredible spouse. Because I am a Luddite when it comes to theater. Like, I'll watch and go to and see anything. Like, I'm the guy who says out loud that I didn't mind the Les Mis movie and doesn't get murdered somehow. Listen, that movie made $400 million worldwide. You're not the only person who loved the Les Mis movie. <laughs> that's, that's you know, fair. I get it. I get it. It's 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 a it's a weeper. I listen. You're 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 not gonna. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I genuinely don't. That's fair. I think that's you, true. I think that if, if a work of art gives you pleasure, it should be free of guilt. But that said, getting to see that show, seeing Beetlejuice, besides Hamilton and a couple of others, it was one of the first shows where I went to and went. Oh, this was for me. I know there are other people <laughs> here, but this was made so I could see it. Because from the jokes to the the music to like all of, like it just it all felt like something that I've been waiting to see on Broadway for ages and I can't even like the cast is so talented and and the fact that you got to jump into some of those roles the first time I saw a photo of you as Otho knowing you from Burlesque I was just like oh yeah that that's just perfect that role was made for Abe and let me and by the way I want to I want to address two things in there one is that you are not the first person and not even the 20th person who've told me that they felt like that show was specifically made for them, which I think is a mark of genuine artistic success because it was like, obviously it's a big splashy, you know, all ages, unless you're under like 10, I guess, but you know, fairly all ages musical. Uh, so, you know, you're aiming for a broad audience, but when a show tries to please everybody, it frequently pleases nobody. And with this, I think there was such a specific vision at work and the, the writers were so intent on amusing themselves that, that it just, it feels personal to people. Yeah. Um, so there's that, which I, which I love. I love that it feels, I love that something that costs $21 million and is, <laughs> is absolutely created by committee because, you know, it's, it's a gigantic corporate show. There's a lot of cooks in that kitchen. Sure. You know, some of them are artists and some of them are management. Uh, but the fact that something can emerge from that process and feel so personal is beautiful. And the other thing I wanted to address was Otho. Doing Otho, I did Otho a bunch of times. And it was the absolute most fun. Uh, because they didn't want me to do what Kelvin Moon Lowe, the actor who plays Otho, does with the role. That was their advice to every single swing and understudy. It was like, don't imitate bring something else to it right and so i started making choices that were just like well this came from the audition in the audition when they had me read for otho i was like i need to make a choice here that's either going to really nail this job down for me or make sure i never work again <laughs> and so i made this truly insane vocal choice which was sort of like the love child of a three-way 
gay fuck between James Mason, uh, Stephen Toast, and uh, the Moonanites from <laughs> from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Oh my god, you have to give the listeners a sample of what that sounds like. Well, yes. Although he spoke like this, he was Charles. <laughs> you see, Charles, as a life coach, I have but one enemy. Death! You know, uh, it was a total cartoon thing. Sure. And they let me do it. I, I was like, is that too much? And they were like, no, 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 keep going that way. And amazingly, Timbers really figured it out when he, when he saw me. Usually in understudy rehearsals, you just have stage management. And they're amazing. We had Rachel Botter and Matt DiCarlo and, I mean, David Sugarman, and they were just indispensable and amazing. But then every so often, Timbers would show up and sit in on an understudy rehearsal. And he said, I love that whole, like, Stephen Toast thing you're doing. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> he gets it. <laughs> he gets it. He also, this is, I will say this about Timbers. One, he never lost his cool, which on a production of this size is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's so many moving parts and so much can go wrong. And there's so many egos. Uh, and he was just gracious and kind. All of his notes led with something encouraging and then his general tactic for giving notes is i really like this why don't we try sprinkling on a little of that and just see what happens you know and he got results the 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 unity of style was complete you saw those those actors i mean it was yeah everyone's on the same page and that doesn't happen by accident uh but also he would learn the language to speak to every actor because he knows that every actor has a different way of communicating. And with me, he realized that references to obscure television and film were, were the way to, to get through to me. So, you know, there was a point when we were when I was rehearsing Beetlejuice where he has to sit down at the same time as Adam Maitland on, on a little ottoman. Yeah. And Timber's way of explaining it to me was like, so think of this, it's like a Brian De Palma split screen situation where, you know, he, you're on the right side of the screen, he's on the left. It was so very much... He never spoke that way to anybody else. And it, I noted that, and I thought, wow. Uh, <laughs> he really gives a shit. Also, also, occasionally, he'll just send me strange images and videos <laughs> over text, which I love. As someone who follows you on Twitter and, and knows you personally, uh, it's a shock to me that someone would think that you'd have a love of obscure cinema and TV. That's so not your brand. It's well, not no, like I you... mean, listen, I mean, he doesn't follow <laughs> me on Twitter. Timbers, you know. Sure, that's true. But, like, he, he just, he understood. And sure. and he sends me things like the last 10 minutes of Midsommar with no music. He found it and he was like, he just <laughs> sent it with no comment. <laughs> this was this was before I had his number in my phone, so I received yeah. this from oh, a no. number from a number I didn't recognize, and I was like, "Wow, who is this?" And he was like, "It's Timbers." <laughs> he was so cheerful. That's amazing. That's really cool. He's a true mutant uh, and a gentleman, and I, I adore him. Yeah, I mean, seeing the show like for me as a as a rock fan, as a musical fan, and as a burlesque person i can't really i don't feel like i can say perform i mean i guess performer i've hosted and i've dj'd but like as someone uh, from if the you've hosted school, you're a performer <laughs> fair enough i won't argue with the master that said like seeing that show i was like there's so much burlesque isms in the show just like especially like you said the way beetlejuice speaks to the audience oh it's crowd work he's doing crowd work and like the runners like, were the runners different every night? Oh, oh, you're, oh, no, no, no. The runners were pretty similar. I mean, he made yeah. little tiny adjustments. But the, this guy knows what I'm talking about, runner. 
<laughs> yeah. That, that that's, that's the same. I mean, so it, there were differing levels of severity every night. <laughs> sure. Sometimes he would say for the third, this guy knows what I'm talking about. He'd be like, this guy knows what I'm talking about. Ah! And then sometimes he would just like turn to the audience and go, this guy knows what I'm talking about. Amazing. Got him. <laughs> he would like <laughs> yelled, got him one night. <laughs> that's because Alex Brightman is a fucking genius. He's a madman and an, an amazing, amazing madman. I, and, like, I felt like I knew him immediately, and I've never met the man. But, like, just seeing him on stage in that role, I was just like... And I never got the chance to see School of Rock, so this was, like, my first time really getting to see him do something. And I was just like, this guy's a lunatic, and I love it. Like, the energy, it was just... And there's a lot of his... There's a lot of him in there. It's a lot of stuff that amuses him. <laughs> Well, and it's reminiscent to me of like I grew up watching the Beetlejuice cartoon. Like I loved the movie as a kid. Oh, the show is the show is absolutely adjacent to the cartoon. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's it's I, th- I think I can't remember who said it on the creative team, but they were like, "This is very much a sort of fan fiction melding of the film and the cartoon." Yeah, and and it and it's super clear. I mean, like from everyone's performances and like the over the top, like. What I love about the show is it works in stuff from the movie that's really important to the fans, but it also changes all of those numbers enough that they feel unique on stage. And I think that Well, no was... one knows where it's going, even if you've seen the movie a hundred times. Because <laughs> the, the road to get to the dinner party is different. And you've got that kind of frenemy, big brother, little sister relationship with Beetlejuice and Lydia that is not in the film. Yeah. In the film, Beetlejuice is a straight-up predator. Yep. And in this one, he definitely... He's a monster, but like... The show also gives him that big Disney I want thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so enough enough changes, and especially like, you know, in the film, of course, Lydia's mother is not dead. Yeah. In the film, there's not really a lot of discussion of that. And Delia is a completely different character. And I mean, it, it's so much is rearranged. Uh, Mac Rogers, who's a great playwright, came and saw the show. Yep. And he said that he said that one of his great pleasures of it was watching the Deo scene and thinking, man, I, I know this, but like, I have no idea where it's going. I don't know what <laughs> happens next. Yeah. Because by the end of act one, the entire, f- the, the, the first half of the show is sort of a remix. Yeah. Of the, of the sort of a big chunk of the film. There's a lot that's changed, but the ba- the bones are pretty similar. And then at the end of act one, it just goes way out on its own, which I loved. I love that it was just like, yeah, no, now now we're in uncharted territory. Beetlejuice and Lydia are haunting a house together. <laughs> and I love that they take those liberties and none of it feels out of place. Like, it all just feels part of that world. And also, like, you get to spend time with characters in this, in this version that you don't barely get to spend time with in the movie or even the cartoon. And, like, like her That's father, right. like, the whole big second half arc with her father is incredible devastating and again like the actors there i mean adam danheiser is so great in that role sophia and caruso incredible as lydia and and presley ryan who took over the role uh also brilliant but like yeah no i the show in dc was so much sadder Mm -hmm. and i loved it for that but also i understood why it was on a mood level it fluctuated too much for a lot of people but there were two things in the show that absolutely ripped my heart out, and neither of them came to New York. One of them was the Maitlands. Instead of Maitlands 2.0, there was a song called The Children We Didn't Have. And basically, Adam and Barbara have this big fight with Lydia. And in the DC version, it's set up earlier in the show that Adam and Barbara have experienced at least one miscarriage. And so Barbara gets this absolutely heart-rending solo, The Children We Didn't Have. And then the other one that really tore my heart out was there was a bit of singing from Charles towards the end of the netherworld sequence when he finds 
when he finds Lydia out in the void. And it was a reprise of another cut song. And I had to learn that reprise for the audition. And the first time I heard it, I literally couldn't get through it without crying. Yeah. Because it was the saddest, most vulnerable, like plainest thing. And I think the mood is still there. The scene between the two of them is absolutely heartbreaking. And it captures everything that that song fragment got across and very elegantly. But yeah, no, their relationship absolutely tears me up. It's really a love letter to, I feel like, um, goth kids who grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, for me, at absolutely. Least, like, it just, there's so much of that. And what's, again, what was beautiful for me knowing you and getting to see, like, so for the listener who doesn't know, uh, Abe also performs as Bastard Keith. He's hosted many a burlesque show. We've worked together on many occasions. And yes. by far, the dumbest, and I mean this as a compliment, the dumbest thing... <laughs> I've ever seen you do is okay. we were part of a Muppets burlesque show. Oh my god, are you talking about Castard Beef? Yes. And you performed from the uh, more recent Muppet movie, the Muppet movie, the Manor of Muppet song with yes. a puppet of yourself and a re recorded version of the track of you singing with yourself. Yeah, so I was duetting with my disembodied voice and then did like the lip syncing with the puppet. Ugh, it's <laughs> that it's <was> just <laughs> that was ridiculous, and in and during the show, I think like I pulled the audience for like this guy needs an accent. What accent should he have? So he was just Italian for most of it, but like not in that number. No. So for the rest of the show, <laughs> Caster the Beef, he talking like this. It was possibly very <laughs> offensive possibly. to my Italian friends, uh, but it it went over. And, like, the, that sense of humor and that dedication to the ridiculous is something I had seen in you before I got to see you on stage. And so it was so satisfying, like, <laughs> to see you, even just as the, the census taker, for that brief moment that you get uh, uh, on stage outside of the ensemble. Oh, yeah. It just feels so you. And, like, I just, I died. It killed me because... I adore you and your work, but, like, I can see you in that because I'd seen you do nonsense like this as long as I've known you, and it just felt like such a great fit. That was put in three days before opening. Really? That bit. Uh, you know, it had originally been kind of... We'd done it in a different way down in D.C. I was like a gruff uh, gas man who came in, <laughs> and there was no... The bit kind of wasn't landing... And then I said, because I was I was doing my own scream as I ran off stage, and it just wasn't landing. And then I asked if they had any really shrill, high pitched screams that they could just pipe <laughs> in, and that and it worked. And then they cut it out, and then they brought it back as the as the census taker, and uh, it just it played. I was so there's really nothing so awesome as having a tiny little bit because you're a cog in all this when you're an ensemble guy. Sure, you're, you're bringing a lot of you're bringing a lot of work and art to it, but also you recognize that you're there to make the wheels run. Um, but there is nothing more satisfying than having a tiny little bit like that and just having it go over. It's the best feeling. You know, I, it really, it felt great. <laughs> and then having it on the, on the original cast album. Yeah, that's... Having that bit on the album, I was like, oh shit, man, it just doesn't get better. Yeah, it, and, and I'm so thankful to have gotten to see it when it was running because, um, of course, well, that's when we're recording now. We're in a post-pandemic state. And even before that, it was, of yes. course, closing. And so, like, but it lives on on the cast recording. And, you know. It does. And the fandom is still, the fandom is still 
outrageous. So hungry. And what I love is how interactive everyone from the show is, too. Like, nobody was like, oh, I don't want to talk to anybody about this. Like, everyone is just in on it and a part of it. And Oh, yeah. It, 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 it was, it, it's awesome. There's a real dialogue there. And it feels like, and I mean, I, I'm only talking from the outside looking in, but it felt like a family just looking at it. I mean, uh, watching you guys. So Absolutely correct. Th- the biggest highlight for me, I think, in all of this is that I, for the first time living in New York my entire life, went to the Macy's parade last year. And <laughs> you, like, first of all, you were in the Macy's parade. You did one of the Beetlejuice numbers. Um, I know. It was crazy. But, like, also for me and Sarah <laughs> to arrive to the, our, the stands as you were prepping and getting to see you again is like it's impossibly crazy how well that worked out like and we didn't we with my big walrus mustache oh, that mustache like so big so big they had to make a bigger mustache for that for that parade and then that was the mustache for the show that's amazing because they were like we need a mustache that really reads on camera I loved seeing the two of you there it was insane I was on no I didn't sleep well, yeah, because you're rehearsing a ton before the the performance, right? Not not a lot. Okay. Uh, I think we had we had maybe a half an hour one night in the middle of the street. Okay. Uh, when they had when they had it blocked off, and then the day of, I think we ran through it a couple times. It's not nearly as much rehearsal as you'd <laughs> think or hope. But man, oh, what a, what a rush that was! But yeah, I was on no sleep, so everything was very surreal. <laughs> And, I mean, I assume that's the first time you've ever been in the Macy's Day Parade. That would be accurate. That is my... (laughs) You would be correct in that assumption (laughs) that there had never been a reason to call Abe Goldvarb in to perform in the Macy's Day Parade prior to that moment. It was was incredible. The whole show was just a series of firsts. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know I was going to be in the Broadway cast because after, you know, I mean, I, I did it out of town and I was like, this is my first one of these. And it's and if I hit a wall here, I still got to do this. And that's amazing. And then I didn't know for a month and a half uh, whether I was in the in the Broadway production, mm-hmm. which was, you know, <laughs> it's nerve wracking not to know. I would have been fine with a no. And but not knowing was kind of difficult. And then I found out. That it was basically because they were, you know, they were working really hard to figure out all the coverage. There were a lot of roles to cover. Yeah. And we wound up having a lot more swing coverage uh, in the Broadway production. And thank God, because if anything had gone wrong down in D.C., it would have been (laughs) an absolute nightmare getting all that coverage. If more than one performer had been out of a show, there, I mean, it's DEFCON 5. Jeez. Uh, But yeah, so I, so it was the first out-of-town tryout of a big musical my first, then my first uh, Broadway uh, show, my first original uh, Broadway cast album, my first Today Show appearance, my first uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade appearance, my first appearance on the Tonys, and every all I could think for this whole process was so few people ever get to do even one of these things. If you're not living in profound gratitude for every single moment of this. You're missing it. Yeah. And that was my, that was how I tried to live with it all. Like, never let this become uh, quotidian. Sure. Just, like, be present and aware of what a miracle this all is. Sure. And, I mean, but you're also the kind of person, like, again, I've worked with you a ton. I've I've maybe seen you cranky before, I could say, but I've never seen you ungrateful. I've never seen you f- foul or, or pissed off. And I'm <laughs> sure you have been, but, like... You see, oh, I've I've been I've been extremely pissed off, but I feel in, in my it's, 
Yeah. But but I feel like at least when performing, like you've always been a professional. You've always been super high and 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 high energy. And I've occasionally been high. Occasionally, <laughs> yes. Very occasionally. Very occasionally. Um, <laughs> and and what's also what's really interesting about being beyond just a friend, a fan of your work, is that you've done such diverse things. Like we've talked about burlesque, we've talked about the musical, but like you last year directed a film written by previous guest and recently mentioned Mac Rogers. Oh, I didn't know you'd interviewed him. That's so great. Yeah. Oh, he's oh, a what a lord. What an absolute mensch. He is. I, I'm so lucky to know the Gideon production folks through Sarah. Um, yeah. And and I just I I'm still astonished that I'm friends with a good chunk of them because to me they're they're celebrities in their own right to me and I've seen so many I had seen so many of Mac's works before I met Mac and I just and he's just such a kind sweet awesome dude like yes. super down to earth super nerdy super lovely yeah I I mean the guy's literally writing audio dramas official Doctor Who audio dramas uh, and to me to me that's like the peak that's the summit like you you wrote for doctor who you know i he's he's a genius he's brilliant before we move on from from beetlejuice really uh-huh. quick i just want to say you said we felt like a family we absolutely were and are mm-hmm. and that was that's one of the things that made it so special that i i i felt welcomed and valued and supported by all of these people who had there's no percentage in holding up the new guy for sure you know, but like everyone was there for each other, and it it was from the production team through the creatives, through the 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 performers, through the cr- I mean through the crew. This was absolutely a family operation, and if it felt like that, it's because it was the kindness and generosity and 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 soul of everybody involved is it cannot be properly calculated. I mean, I don't d- doubt it. it. Reads it reads from the audience absolutely one hundred percent. Uh, from top to bottom, and and it's always so great to hear that. I mean, you never know, right? Like I've heard horror stories from any point in any industry. Like anything is possible, and so it's just always nice when when shows that seem that close are. There was so much not an asshole when there's usually the asshole. There was so much not the asshole that you start worrying like, fuck, am I the asshole? <laughs> like, am I the guy? <laughs> am I the guy? Uh, but no, incredible, incredible experience. And doing it down in D.C. was like, you know, summer camp. It was like a sleepaway camp experience. But anyway, uh, the film, The Horror at Gallery K, written by Mac Rogers. And directed by you. Directed by me. And starring some Uh, incredible humans who I know from both Burlesque and from Gideon Productions. Astonishing people. Brian Silliman, who is just a master. Just a truly great actor. Main attraction, who, who I think in this film reaches some extremely hard to reach places emotionally. And then you've got Kristen Vaughn, who of course is beyond words, and Rosebud, my uh, my partner in in life and occasional cohort in art, who had never on film done a role this demanding, and who is unquestionably a highlight and freaks people out, which I love. People tell me how freaked out and hypnotized and and uh, smitten they are with with Rosebud in this film, and that's perfect because you should be. Uh, Rosebud is one of those performers that. Even though I know them through you and I've met them several times, I still like kind of look and go, oh, my God, that's Rosebud. They're amazing. <laughs> like, you know, I still think that <laughs> I still have that moment with Rosebud where I'm like, oh, wow, that's Rosebud. That's Rosebud. Yeah. Look what they're doing. It, it like the, the talent that you packed into this film. Like, I don't even know where to start with talking about um, the Horror Gallery K. Like, so 
was this something that you and Matt collaborated on to create? Um, is it something that he came to you with? Like, how did this this production happen? How did it come to be? Okay, so I had written a few screenplays, and all of them would have cost bare minimum several hundred thousand dollars to make. You know, and I mean, up to up to over a million if you really wanted to make it look good. And I was frustrated because I really wanted to direct a movie, and I was like, well, who do I know who is an astonishing writer? And that's obviously Mac Rogers. And and Mac had had a lot of his work optioned and then not filmed and was feeling, I think both of us were coming from a place of like, we're not getting something from this experience and we want to serve each other's needs on this. Like I needed to direct a film and he really wanted something that he'd written to actually go in front of the cameras. For sure. And so I said, okay, two locations, three speaking roles. He expanded it to four, but that that's fine. And the only thing I really had for him was this a horror film, but like the scariest thing is that you wake up next to somebody and you really don't know who they are, even though you've known them forever. Right. And he took that. And of course, Mac takes a simple directive like that and spins <laughs> out this astonishing sort of micro universe. The screenplay is gorgeous. And we went through a few drafts of it. Every line of dialogue in it is his. I, I made some like structural recommendations and some recommendations for cuts and uh, other. I mean, it's pretty much pure Mac Rogers. That's amazing. Thank God for that. No, he's, I mean, he's incredible. And so he, he wrote the script back in 2015. And then I was like, okay, how do I make a movie? Like, how, <laughs> how does that happen? An important question to ask. Yeah. And I had a really, I had a really wonderful cast. I had Rosebud. I had Brian Silliman and I had uh, Kristen Vaughn and I had Renika Reddick, who is a staggeringly talented actor. And she just quit acting. She's producing. Ugh. And and, and uh, I was kind of stuck. And I didn't really know what to do. And then I just conv- I just offered it to Maine because I, I, mean, I, I literally had not auditioned Maine at all. Right. But I had a feeling that she was going to be right for this, that she was the correct vibe and that she could do it. And ultimately she could. Like she just, uh, it's, it's very brave to take on a role like that because there's so much uh, emotional vulnerability and there's one gigantic monologue in there. You know, I mean, literally, I think that monologue with a couple of interjections takes up probably what, 10 minutes of the film. I have no idea, but yeah, I mean, we, we got all that. We got the cast together and I still didn't really know how you make a movie. (laughs) And then I, I have a friend of Brian Ank who has produced and directed a lot of low budget horror, uh, including the big bad, and, oh, nice. uh, the moose okay. head on the mantle, mm-hmm. and I just said, "Man, uh, how do you how do you do this?" And he was like, "Well, let's just set some shoot dates." <laughs> I was like, "That's nice. you can't do that, right? <laughs> that, it doesn't work that way, right? That's not how it works." He was like, "No, no, no. Yeah, you set shoot dates, and then you, you shoot the movie." <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's it. And he he took it on, and he's a prince, and he uh, he says that this is among his favorite things he's ever worked on. And I'm very grateful for that. It was a a real skeleton crew. You know, I mean, this was, we made it, I think the ultimate cost was around $8,000. We shot it. We had two days of set decoration and lighting. We had seven days of shooting in the main schedule. And then we did like two evening shoots for pickups a couple weeks later. I would not recommend that schedule to anybody. (laughs) Fair enough. It was, (laughs) I mean, at a certain point, you really do feel like you're going insane. Yeah, I would imagine. 
but it's also thrilling because you you sort of there's all these decisions you have to make when you're directing a film and also operating the camera which i did a lot of just like slung it over my shoulder and 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 shot and i actually found the constant torrent of decision making very relaxing huh. because it was just like well you know you have to make a choice or you just don't shoot anything and <laughs> right. want to keep shooting so choice and sometimes those choices work out and sometimes they don't. And for the most part, ours worked out pretty well. That's amazing. I, and like for me to see something like this after knowing, like I said, knowing your work and knowing all the things you've done, it's so different. But yet I can still see your vision in it. I can still see things like I feel like I've seen you produce or or host shows enough that I get a sense of the kinds of things you're looking for when you're trying to organize something or, or set up something. And it surely shows in this, this. And of course, like, I think I knew that Mac had written it, but it wasn't until after I had seen the trailer that I looked it up and went, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, this is a Mac Rogers joint. I mean, my entire approach was get out of the way of the script. Uh-huh. That was literally, I was like, how do I position the script as, as the centerpiece of all this? I mean, which makes total sense. I mean, like, like I had never, I had never seen any of the Honeycomb trilogy before. I saw the three of them in the in a row, the the when they staged them together. Oh, the Honeycomb trilogy, and this was at um, uh, which which production was this? Because they did it a couple. So I think it was the it was the second time they had done it. Yeah, it was just off of Washington Square Park. What is right. it, Judson? I want to say. Yes, I think yeah. that's correct. With that, I, I did the marathon of that. I had seen all original, all the three plays in their original productions and was astonished by them. And then I, I got to see the, the marathon. And I had, I had never seen it. And, and like Sarah knows my love of sci-fi and my love of some horror. And she's like, you should come with me to this thing. You'll, I know you'll like it. And yeah. like, I was absolutely floored by it. And like, what's really consistent about Mac is everything that he's a part of or does with just him or Gideon Productions in general. It just, it's an insane level of theater that I had thought not possible. Like my favorite thing about you and I connecting later on down the line of knowing each other through burlesque is me getting to rediscover you as an actor. When I went to, there was a show that you had done where it was a reading of a, of a graphic novel that you were in. Oh, Kill Shakespeare. Kill Shakespeare. Yes, directed by Jordana Williams of the Honeycomb Trilogy. And, like, I just remember going, oh, right, of course, Abe's an actor as well. And, like, then also running into so many other actors I had seen from those other shows and realizing, oh, Mac and, and the rest of them all just know geniuses, Sean and Jordana. <laughs> they just know geniuses who want to do uh, brilliant work. Uh, well, they make us look good. <laughs> and, like, let's, let's be honest. Well, you know, I mean, they, I think they know what they're doing at this point for sure. Yes, they do. <laughs> but, like, it's just really fun to then, after seeing so much theater, like I got to see Frankenstein Upstairs and so many other oh, Rogers plays. Underrated oh. Frankenstein Upstairs. That that came after Honeycomb and I think was registered by some as, as uh, I don't know, a come down or a minor work. That's what a lot of the criticism of it said. And I remember watching it and just being entranced. I, I thought it was a stupendous fucking show and a, a genuinely radical piece. Yeah. Well, and because of the, the twists and turns in it that you don't expect, like they, they set it up a little bit, but like, especially in the final act, like how it comes back around, it's just, it's insane. And it's and, beautiful writing and so upsetting. Yeah. And so like to then get to see a horror gallery K and know that you're a part of it and know that Max a part of it, like that legacy is like I will follow Mac 
And if you're listening, Mac, hello. If you're not, that's okay, too. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I will watch anything that you do. Yep, same. Just because of that kind of work. And, and, I, and I agree that uh, Horror and Gallery K is up there with all of those incredible Mac works. And, and It's very, very special. And it's very much in line with his fascinations. There's, there's a real pure shot of Mac in there. You know, I, 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 I genuinely think there's no one like him. And I felt so lucky that we got this script to play with. And it's a challenging script. It's an extremely challenging script. And it's so talky that he, I think Mac was worried that it wouldn't be, that it would, he was worried it wouldn't be a crowd pleaser or cinematic enough, I think. Yeah. And we, we really, honestly, I think I, I, I just got lucky. The thing plays, you know, I mean, I, I worked as hard as I could on it, but also, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of luck involved in if a work of art turns out well. <laughs> And, and, I mean, the buck stops with me. Like, if the dialogue doesn't work, it's because I shot it and cut it wrong. And because I, and because I directed it wrong. And the first time we showed it was at the Slipper Room mm-hmm. back, uh, I think it was April 2nd, 2018. And I figured, you know, we'd get the cast and crew and maybe a few other people. We'd have, like, 30 people in the house, max. And it packed out. There were people, like, hanging off the balconies. That's amazing. Well, I thought, oh, fuck. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> they've come here to see a movie by Bastard Keith, and it's... A black and white, dialogue-driven, lesbian romantic horror fantasy, you know, <laughs> in two, in, with two locations. And I'm, I was like, oh, God, how do I soften their expectations here? Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and amazingly, it played. Like, within a couple of minutes of the start, the stuff that I thought was funny started getting laughs. And then as the thing went on, the reactions just grew. And it, it, they were listening. They were paying attention. And I thought, oh, thank God. Oh, God, I'm, I'm very lucky. <laughs> well, because you never know how that's going to go, right? Especially when you show something publicly or do something publicly. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it, it goes all the way back to hosting burlesque. Like, yes. I could step out on stage and say a joke, and it bombs. The good thing is, after that point, I can go, here's some boobs and butts. Like you, you or don't here's to... here's anything else. Right, that's fair. You know, <laughs> yes. any literally anything else but me. I'm sorry that joke was terrible. Oh no 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 no! Never ever 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 do that. Never apologize. <laughs> apologize if you've accidentally said something insanely offensive. Sure. Otherwise, I, I actually really am a big believer in steering into the bad joke. Mm, like that's really a good point. just really owning it, <laughs> not playing it not playing it into the ground. So the audit because eventually the audience is gonna be like, let's move on. Yeah, but you know, but lean into it. Either that, or just move on <laughs> immediately. <laughs> <laughs> move on to the next thing. But the thing played, and we had another screening a few a few months later, and it played then. And I I thought that I had made something that was such a, a kind of obscure little, I don't know, curate's egg. Yeah. But it the thing plays, which I think is really down to a the fact that Mac wrote a great story, and b the performances are ridiculously great. The actors in the movie are great. And yeah. I didn't fuck it up too bad. <laughs> Way to pat yourself on the back. I think you did a pretty I, dang I, I good I, job. I, didn't, I think I didn't fuck it up. <laughs> I mean, there's bits where I think I fucked it up. But like, apparently, they don't seem to matter. My, my mistakes seem to be largely <laughs> irrelevant to people's experience of the movie. And I'm very grateful for that. It's on, it's on Prime Video. You should watch it. Yes, please. Everybody go watch it. The Horror at Gallery K. It will be in the show notes uh, for sure. Yes, excellent. Excellent. And, and, and review it on Amazon if you like it. If you don't like it, shut your mouth. But if you do like it, review it on, on Prime Video 
and uh, rate it on IMDb and just, you know, tell people. Uh, because, listen, we didn't break our bank making the movie, but, you know, I mean, we just want people to enjoy it. We're not looking. We're not looking for a big financial windfall here. We really just want people to enjoy the movie. Totally. Yeah, and I get that. And I, we live in the generation of like, subscribe, and rate and review. So you know, literally, yes. <laughs> so literally, smash that. Them. Smash that subscribe button. <laughs> uh, but like, also talking about your work with Mac and stuff you've done. Like, I've gotten to see you do such a variety of roles, both with and without him. Like, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk at least a little bit about the brilliance that was Steal the Stars. Oh, I loved Steal the Stars. And like, so also, uh, Nat Cassidy is a previous guest of the podcast. We talked about his novelization, which I absolutely love as well. Another absolute lord, and it's a discreet work of art that you can experience totally separate from the podcast. Which is also brilliant, yeah. But, like, I think I told you this uh, either at the release party or or seeing you after listening, but, like, I've never seen a man play a douchebag as well <laughs> as you do in that podcast. What an asshole. <laughs> Trip Hayden. What an oh. absolute piece of shit. Oh, I loved playing him. What a joy. <laughs> that was the most fun. When you're playing a character that's just a total tool like that, do you look an for... An irredeemable scumbag. <laughs> yeah. Do you look for inspiration? Like, what, what tools in the real world can get you to that place? I mostly just think, what does he want? Yeah. You know, and then just... <laughs> but that's it. It's, it's just, what does he want? And how does he justify it to himself? Because if you just act on a desire and justify it to yourself, you're capable of being a complete monster and a piece of shit yeah and so that was that was it it was it was just i want that's amazing <laughs> and i mean it shows i mean i don't want to i'm not going to spoil it if you haven't listened to steal the stars it's a podcast whatever you're doing drop it we'll finish this first but then yes finish listening to this <laughs> for god's sake you, you unfocused zoomers but then please go listen to steal the stars but like even in the final episode like he is unchanged by everything. That's right. He learns, he learns nothing. Literally nothing. Like a classic bad guy. Yeah, it's per I, I fucking absolutely <laughs> love. There's no redemption for Trip Hayden. And I love that. And I loved, and I forget, you said that you were at the, the live performance? I was, yes. Which we, Mac had to really sort of watch himself writing Trip in there because he had so much fun writing mean stuff for him to say. <laughs> sure. And I think, and I think there's a way of doing mean dialogue that's kind of endearing, and I just have no interest in that at all. <laughs> I like, I want it. I just, I have no interest in begging the audience's sympathy or delight when I'm playing someone like that. I just want to be revolting. And we just kind of decided, well, he did a bunch of coke before showing up <laughs> that day at Quill Marine. Oh. Perfect. And so he's really amped. And in the performance, <laughs> it's a much more adrenalized Trip Hayden. Yeah. Than in the show. Oh, that live performance was great, too. And, like, another insane cast of incredibly talented oh people. Yes. Astounding. <laughs> what a cast. But uh, uh, my question is, actually, leading up to all these different things you've done, because you've also done VO, you've been on Pokemon. Yeah. You do a lot of different things. Clearly, the plight of any entertainer right now is pretty much, you have to do a thousand things because there's not enough to do. The plight of any entertainer right now is, where's the fucking work? <laughs> well, that that is actually very true. Yeah. Yes. Not, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. No, the plight the, the, of any entertainer right now is, ah, oh, shit. Shit. Yeah. That was the plight. Now we just want anything. Yeah, yes, for sure. I would, I would love correct. a job. <laughs> but where did all of this... I'm curious where it all started. Like, were you intent on being an actor first? Did you yes. want... So that was where the rest of it branched out from. Yes. All I, all I wanted was to be an actor. And I acted in elementary school. And I acted in junior high. And I... And then I, I uh, at summer camp at Bucks Rock in Connecticut, I, uh, I did a bunch of acting there and a bunch of uh, clown work, which I loved. I like building uh, sketch shows out of improvisation at the age awesome. of 16. Oh, wow. Which, which is absurd. <laughs> and, uh, and then like in high school at the Putney School, we uh, renovated a derelict barn to make it into a theater. And uh, that was where the, th- and now they have a whole facility. That's amazing. But back in the day, we literally just had to like go in there and, and just, I don't want to say gut it, like there was still bones, but it needed a lot of work. And then that mm-hmm. was where theater happened for several years. And it was awesome. I loved it. And my parents took me to see a lot of Broadway shows when I was a kid. And my dad had done children's theater as a young man and also some community theater as a grown up. Uh, and he was of the opinion that he was not a good actor, my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have n- I, I have no idea, but I, I, I think he was probably not as bad as he thought he was, because he was a very charismatic and delightful man. And what I really wanted to do, I missed this by a couple of years, when I started making movies, all I wanted to do was to have my dad play like the Sidney Greenstreet role, you know, like, the old man, like the old guy in the fedora who, uh, yeah. you know, who likes to talk to a man who likes to talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I didn't get to direct a movie until several years after he died, uh, which was definitely that hurt. And I didn't get to do Broadway until after he died. And I, I, I just, uh. I really wished he could have been there for that. But he got to witness a lot of milestones for me. And I was, I was very grateful for that. It was important to him and it was important to me. There was a, a very special kind of frequency on, on which we communicated with regards to the arts. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I wanted to act. And I also, when I was in high school, I would just sometimes write a play every weekend. Like write, like write your own play on a weekend? Yeah, I would just write a play. And, you know, when I was 17, I wrote a play where I, there was a, it was the, uh, the Telluride Young Playwrights Festival had their, de- had their deadline for postmarking the next day. So I wrote the second half of a play in one night, stayed up all night, and then got it in the mail. And it wound up winning first place, and they, I flew out to Telluride to see it performed, and it was a real trip. It was, the show was called uh, A Random Day in the Life of Fegman Vernacular. Uh, and the play is, it's unreadable garbage. <laughs> it's like, I can't imagine, I can't believe adults had to say what I wrote. It's, it's fucking trash. But I'm also very oddly proud of it. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's still good to be proud. Yeah, it's good to be proud. I didn't do as much writing when I was in my 20s. Um, and then I, I, I mostly focused on acting and it wasn't really until my thirties when I started doing a lot of acting work, like my twenties, I, I worked at the Jean Cocteau rep downtown. I did a couple seasons with them, which was an amazing experience. And then kind of failed my way through my twenties, a whole bunch, a lot of failure. That's familiar to me. So much. (laughs) And then in my thirties, I finally started working. A lot, uh, to the point where I was supporting myself. Uh, it's incredible. I I still feel like I'm putting something over on people when I'm when I'm acting for a living. 
I feel like that's a requirement of anyone making any kind of art is like the minute oh, yeah. you accept that you're a genius and you're God's gift, you're you've run out of things to do. You because... suck and you're worthless. You have nothing to say. <laughs> you believe that you're God's gift. Because part of it, so much of at least my experience creating anything is like, oh, my God, did that suck? Is this terrible? Should I redo that? Is this enough? Am I too much? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that for me. It's more like, wh- wh- who, who am I fooling? <laughs> I am a bullshit merchant. I'm just standing here <laughs> jackassing around, you know, and, and, so, and people seem to find this acceptable. <laughs> they seem to think that this is worth giving me money to do. And so, like, they've been fooled, and I'm not going to disabuse them because I'd like to eat. Uh, but, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, and even, God, the cartoon stuff only really happened. Two things led to the cartoon work. One of them was meeting uh, Hillary at your wedding. They are uh, one of my favorite humans who I don't get to see enough who work for the Pokemon company. Astonishing person. And they were, they had enjoyed my burlesque hosting. And I made an offhand remark like, God, I would love to be on Pokemon. And they were like, oh, you should uh, get in touch with this person. I'll tell them to be expecting a, an email from you. Our, Teresa Bugheister, our, our voice director. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, for reals? And they were like, yeah, totally. Which leads to the, I had to have a reel to send in. And the reason I had a reel was because since the early 2000s, I had been doing voices for Wajidai Games, Dave Gilbert's uh, game company. Mm-hmm which he basically runs, he has run and still runs out of his apartment. He makes adventure <laughs> games. Yeah. And so I only had a reel because I'd played a bunch of characters for him. And that's, I sent that in. They brought me in for an audition. And then I worked on Pokemon for like four years. It's like, I'm someone who grew up playing the games, grew up watching the cartoon. And like the first time you posted about it, because I don't know if I was watching the Alo- Alolan TV series yet, but you posted about it. And I went, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, because I was in. Well, I was in X, Y, and Z, and yes. then and then I was in Sun and Moon. Right. Did three seasons on Sun and Moon as Kukui. That's Kukui, the studliest. Hillary was like, "Don't look up the fan art." <laughs> and I was She's... like, "Well, I'm obviously going to look up the fan art, and it's all porn. It's it's all porn, all of it. It's all just like him with glistening pecs or his big fat cock hanging out, and like." <laughs> Him fucking Pokemon, getting fucked by Pokemon, fucking another Professor Kakui, just a whole bunch of glistening, throbbing, and fucking. And it's, it's it, it delighted me, and I was like, well, weirdly, I, I'm not intimidated by this. It's 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 a legacy to live up to, but you know, let's give the people what they want. It's it's so cool to see that you do all this voice work, and you voiced characters in games that I don't know that I've even caught. Like I've I don't I haven't played all of Pathfinder Kingmaker, but you voiced yeah. the character in Kingmaker and maybe I haven't gotten to the point that you're in yet, but like that's amazing to me. As someone who grew up playing D and D and then playing Pathfinder later and like now all these games coming out based on both systems, it's like I have a friend who did a voice in a game of a thing that yes, I would I actually Jubilos like... Nartropel. <laughs> of course you do. He's a ma- yes, he's a cartographer. Mm-hmm. A real piece of work. Really <laughs> love playing him. It was a joy. Oh, it's just, it's so cool. Do you know how exhausting it is to voice games? Do you have any idea? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Please tell me. It's, this is not complaining because like, <laughs> my God, how lucky I am to get to do it. But in cartoons, listen, it's already difficult to stand in a booth and just make noises for a couple of hours. It gets very right. physically and psychologically exhausting. <laughs> With games... 
you're doing branching dialogue. Yeah. So you have to do like a million different responses for everything. And at a certain point, there's there's a moment where your brain breaks. You're like, <laughs> fuck, what am I saying? Nothing makes sense. Like, I, 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 I think I did Jubilos for like an hour and a half or two hours once. And I walked out of the booth like unable to, to see straight. It was such a... It's a great job. I want to be very clear. It's an amazing job. But voicing for games is very, very difficult. And listen, I know how lucky I am that, like, my entire job is doing silly make-em-ups. But, <laughs> but it's work, damn it. It's work. It's work. Never forget. Hashtag never forget. The hardest, work, the hardest work I ever did was on Beetlejuice because of the understudy things. Sure. And the dance numbers. Well, and so, well, I'm sure also because you were, an, were you even on the Broadway one, the understudy for those five characters still? Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's crazy. And you could go on at any moment as any of them. At any moment. Like, I went on for Maxi Dean once with 20 minutes notice. I mean, that's basically fine because it's it's a big one scene role. It's a great right. showcase role, but it's one scene. Uh, but yeah, 20 minutes before the show, I found out I was going on for him. And I didn't fully know the dancing in Deo. And so Brooke Engen, our amazing uh, dance captain, sort of took me through it. I'd gone through it briefly previously, but then she... Brooke is amazing. She made sure that I knew what I was doing and didn't look absolutely terrible. But yeah, and it could have happened any time. And when we discontinued performances because of COVID... yeah. It was very likely that I was going to make my Beetlejuice debut very soon because they'd finally had a put-in rehearsal where I did the whole thing. And Ugh. that is grueling. That performance, the idea that Brightman did that eight times a week, it was months before he took a day off. And even then, like the days off, he only ever took like a sick day or like if he had to... I mean, God, he, 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 he didn't even take vacations. It was the most dedicated I'd ever seen. And that role is a meat grinder. I remember afterwards, I just was barely able to form a sentence. <laughs> sure. I mean, you're talking almost nonstop for, for over, you know, multiple hours. Talking, shouting, singing, dancing. <laughs> and I'm good at talking. <laughs> that's, and even that's debatable if you're listening to this. Yeah, I remember you had shared uh, small video clips and photos of yourself in the costume. And I remember seeing them and, like, getting teary-eyed because, like, it just... <laughs> It's 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 such a you role, especially knowing you through burlesque and so many other productions that you've done. Like it's just such a you role, and like even getting to see you through photos and not actually getting to see you do the performance, which which I would have loved to see. That's of very course, kind of you. Is just it's so special. I'm so grateful I got to do the the uh, the full put in rehearsal that I got to do a full performance as Beetlejuice. Sure. Just to know I could do it. I mean, and that must feel really good to know you can do it. There is a sense of like. You've done the triathlon. Yeah. You know, uh, but who knows? I have no idea how it would have felt with an audience in front of it. I just wanted to say one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on today, for one, just because I've wanted to have you on for a while, but two, because I want you to know, even if no one else has told you, and I'm sure others have, that I see you and I see all the work you've been putting in. And I hope that on the other side of the insane apocalypse we are living in right now, that you get to put in more of that work because... Oh, hell, thank you. You're, you're a phenomenal performer and, and a phenomenal friend, and, and I'm so grateful for you to take the time to chat with me about all of this stuff. And there's so much stuff we haven't even gotten to, but I feel like, you know, I know you. We could probably talk for four hours without, a, without like, 
thinking twice. I mean, but... we can talk some more. I first of all, <laughs> everything you're saying is is deeply moving, and I'm very grateful. And I may never work again, and I don't think that's going to happen. But who knows? Right. Sure. Uh, my my general position is one of a kind of, um, I guess, serene skepticism. Sure. Uh, but so. Um... I guess let's let's talk a little bit more. Also, about... look at me trying to immediately change the subject when you're saying nice things. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is extremely on brand. We are both Jews. I'm very familiar with this feeling correct, of correct, wanting correct. compliments constantly, and then immediately, as soon as you're getting them, going, "No, no, 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 no." I'm I'm just a guy. Exactly. Exactly. But actually, I do want to talk about the voice acting a little bit. Um, oh, sure. Since since voice acting, I'm a big voice actor nerd. Like I've loved Rob Paulson my whole life. I followed Maurice Lamarche and like. Oh my God, Maurice Lamarche! What a legend! He can do anything. Literally anything. And like every time I hear his voice in anything, I go, "Oh, that's him." Because even yeah. if he changes it completely, you still if you're if you're a fan of his work, you can find him in there. Like, mm-hmm. it's insane. But what I wanted to ask was, do you do you find voice acting harder or easier because there's no camera? Like, do you find you can go bigger because there's no camera, so it's easier, or it's harder because you're not working off of someone else or something else? Get ready for the cop-out answer. Uh, <laughs> it's, just a di- it's just a different challenge. Yeah. I mean, with a camera, the hard thing is that basically, okay, with theater, you're playing to three people in the back of a huge room. One of them can't hear, one of them can't see, and the third one can't speak your language. So that's, that's who needs to understand what you're doing when you're doing theater. Sure. And then with a camera, the back of the theater is a few inches away from your face. And that changes everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it took me years to learn how to dial it all back. To the point where when I'm acting on camera, I'm like, this isn't even acting. Are you sure this is okay? I'm like not doing anything. <laughs> but um, acting on camera, the challenge there is one of self-consciousness and of preserving your energy so that you can do a full day shooting and, and and bring enough to each take without petering out later in the day. Right. And then with voice acting, it's just exhausting. Largely because you can do anything. And you do anything, and then all of a sudden you have to do that thing over and over <laughs> and over again. Right, because there's either multiple takes or you have to continue with whatever energy you started with. Right. I'm doing a show now called Boy, Girl, Dog, Cat, Mouse, Cheese, which is awesome. It's a great kid's show. And the audition, I was like, is it okay if I make him kind of a snippy, gay, Paul Lind kind of thing? And they're like, yeah, sure. So I did this voice where I was this cartoon mouse who's also a mad scientist. And they were like, great, perfect, do that. And now I've been doing it for like a year. It's exhausting. (laughs) Why did I audition with that? Why on earth did I set myself up? To have to keep doing it, but I love it. It's all it's all great. It's all fun. I mean, you know, it's it's ridiculous that it's a job, right? Like I I sometimes still wonder about some of the things I've gotten to do in front of other humans who paid money to see it uh, at some level or another, and it's like this, th- like this is okay. I can do this. This is a real thing. I also think that comes from a very peculiarly American attitude towards labor. Mm-hmm. The idea being like. If it's work, it shouldn't be fun. Right. Yeah. It should be a grueling, you know, demanding, depleting ordeal. And then you get to do things you enjoy. Right, yeah. You can't just enjoy things right off the bat. That's a- unacceptable. That's right. um, for the record, I've opened in another tab on my computer, uh, boy, girl, dog, cat, mouse, cheese, uh, which I will investigate afterwards because that sounds amazing. and more. It's a real joy. 
Those are the characters in the show. <laughs> All of them, yeah. <clears throat> a boy, a girl, a dog, a cat, a mouse, and a piece of cheese. A sentient piece of cheese, it seems. Yes. <laughs> the cheese talks. The cheese dances. Amazing. Yeah. Phenomenal. Actually, something we haven't talked about that I've always found fascinating and incredibly educational about your presence on Twitter is that you are a huge film nerd, but specifically, you are a huge nerd for particular films. I mean, you like everything, but your love for stuff coming out of India and Bollywood films specifically is unmatched mm. to anyone I've ever seen. And I'm, I'm compared to some of the real scholars of this. I, I have a pretty limited knowledge base, but I, I truly love it. I love Hindi cinema. I love Telugu cinema. I love Tamil cinema. Those are the ones that I've seen a lot of. Because they make, they make movies in over 20 different languages in India. Really? I hadn't yes, realized each, that. Each language has its own regional industry. So the Hindi, uh, the Hindi industry is Bollywood mm-hmm. from Bombay. And then the Tamil industry is Kaliwood. And the Telugu industry is Tollywood. And uh, yeah, I mean, then there's just... You've got Bengali movies... Uh, God, there's like there's so many languages. There's uh, the Malayalam industry, and it's an incredible country for cinema. And like I've learned so much just through you sharing and yelling into the internet uh, things that you've <laughs> loved. And like uh, my favorite thing is when like I, I don't even remember when this was, but I was talking to a YouTuber um, that I was a fan of. Like, he shared a scene from a, a, Bali, a, a random movie, and I was like, oh, I love this. He wanted to know what movie it was, and I tagged you in the tweet, and you're like, oh, it's this. It's from this. You can find it here. Like, Oh, yeah, it was Bahubali, I think. Yes, yes, <clears throat> yes. Which is an awesome movie. Incredibly misogynist, but also <laughs> yes. an awesome movie. It's one of those movies where you're like, I just have to make peace with the retrograde gender politics. Yeah. And, and enjoy the spectacle, because it's a, it's a huge two-part biblical Telugu language epic. And, like, I learned so much from just watching that one movie about things I, like, what I love about that area of film is that, you know, growing up, of course, a lot of my racist idiot friends would write that stuff off, because it all looked silly, it was sing-songy and whatever. And, like, you believe that when you're an ignorant kid. But, like, being educated and learning about the film industry and specifically that part of it and how the insane budgets, special effects, singing, dancing, talent, acting talent, like yes. it's, it's just phenomenal. And I, I go out of my way now to try and find more stuff. Uh, Amazon prime is, oh, I'm great delighted source. by that. I'm so thrilled about that. I, yeah, I mean, I was, when I was in DC with Beetlejuice, I would like take the, they had, you know, uh, their, their, I forget what the local subway down there is called in DC. Uh, but I would take it, you know, an hour out to find some theater, like in Silver Springs or whatever, where they were showing Bollywood. So I could, on my day off, just go and enjoy myself. Where did the love of that kind, uh, that po- portion of cinema come from? How did you first get into it? Well, I was already into uh, Asian cinema in general. Mm-hmm. Chinese movies from the mainland and Hong Kong and Japanese movies and South Korean movies. Uh you get into Hong Kong first because everyone's got, everyone knows someone who had a, like a VHS tape of the killer back in the day or hard boiled. And I was so delighted by that. I started going to the New York Asian film festival, uh, just as, as a customer back in 2005. And then I started writing about the festival for a magazine called impact over in the UK. And the great thing about the Asian film fest is they have some of the more accessible and ludicrous things but then they would have like really beautiful, surprising little movies. 
you know, like just thing little gems. Mm-hmm. Like one call, I remember there was a year where all the stuff people were talking about was big action movies, but there was this little movie called Snakes and Earrings, which was all about a girl who gets into a teenage girl who gets into piercing, and it's kind of graphic and intense and upsetting and gorgeous. And you know, there was a movie that I saw there once. I've never forgotten this experience. It was called The Magicians. It's a Korean film, South Korean, okay. and it was shot in one take on a like a consumer grade handheld video camera whoa and it tells the story of these these people who were in a band together when they were younger and they all reconvene at a lodge and the movie goes into flashback sometimes and the way that they signify it is the actors will put on a different piece of clothing and then you're in the flashback huh and it built up to a final sequence where they they reconvene and play a song. And the film is full of, you know, uh, love and betrayal and, and, and regret. And when it built, when, when the whole emotional bulldozer of a thing just built to that last five minutes, I started sobbing uncontrollably. Wow. It, I, I, I honestly, my body was trembling. Uh, it was an incredible experience. And then one year they showed a film called Krish which was the first, uh, I think the first Bollywood movie I'd ever seen. It's a Bollywood superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which was a sequel to a Bollywood ripoff of E.T. called Koimil Gaia. Okay. And then the sequel, Krish, is about the son of the character from Koimil Gaia, and he's a superhero. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's absolutely berserk. And I remember why, it's three hours long, it's got song, dance, romance, comedy, martial arts. It's got it's it's the full package. It's an e-ticket, you know. And I was so lit up by that. And they also did a sidebar of films by Ram Gopal Varma, who was a uh, a really tremendous like he's made mainstream films in uh, in Telugu and Hindi, but he's a very iconoclastic indie kind of director. He's got his own style. And for the most part, his films don't have song and dance numbers. They sort of go against the grain in that regard. But he makes a lot of crime epics and, I mean, just incredible stuff. There was one called Company, which is... Ram Gopal Varma's Company is a superb crime movie. If you ever get the chance, watch that. And so I was, like, utterly entranced by this whole experience. And so I started seeking out DVDs of Bollywood movies. You know, and I, like, hung out with some of the people from the festival... And they just, you know, they have huge movie collections and, like, you end up having this osmosis education. And then, you know, Kim's video, Mondo Kim's, back when it was on St. Mark's Place, you know, Rest its Soul, they had a huge section of DVDs for sale at at a massive discount, like, incredibly cheap. And a lot of them were Bollywood movies, so I bought a bunch of those and I got a bunch of South Korean movies. And... Then I was like, wait, do they show Bollywood movies like in theaters here? <laughs> and they do. Uh, they're, the Hindi theaters are pretty much, there's only one left in New York, and that's the uh, the big cinemas, Bombay, out in mm-hmm. Flushing, which is very worth going to because they have samosas at the snack bar. And <laughs> they have, and they do, they, they show the movies with intermissions, which uh, if you see them at a mainstream theater, 
they don't have, listen to me talking about going to a movie theater like that's happening anytime soon. <laughs> that's fair. Do you hear me, Christopher Nolan? It's not happening. But I had great experiences going to see Hindi movies. Not as many Tamil or Telugu films because those mostly played in New Jersey. But the Hindi stuff always played at like the AMC Empire 25 mm-hmm. or like uh, the AMC down at uh, 11th and 3rd. And going to an opening night show of a Bollywood movie with a full crowd is a fucking trip. It's an experience. This is like full body movie watching. I think American audiences tend to be rowdy in a way that has nothing really to do with the movie on screen. Yeah. You know, they sort of, everything breaks off into a side conversation. And it's one of the reasons the Alamo Draft House is so good because they actually have a don't talk policy. Yeah. And like put away your cell phone or whatever. But when you go to a big Bollywood opening, it's extraordinary because the audience is on fire. Like taking pictures of the screen when they're, when the hero comes on, and like cheering and whistling during the item girl numbers. The item girl numbers are uh, they have nothing to do with the plot usually. <laughs> they just have a really beautiful actress doing a, a a song and dance number. Sure. Because you know the audience would like to see that. Of course. <laughs> and so that's in the movie. <laughs> and you know they clap and hoot for 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 dialogue from the heroes. The way that they still have a film star system over there, which America really doesn't. In America, the star is the intellectual property. Yeah. And in Bollywood, it still matters. Yeah. Like the person who's in this movie. People will go out to see a Shahrukh Khan movie or a superstar Rajnikant film or Hrithik Roshan or Akshay Kumar or Amir Khan or Salman Khan. You know, these are the these are the big ones. There's the three Khans are the big ones, uh, but like, but there's a, a sort of a big constellation of of stars, and it's just a big deal that they're showing up in a movie, and it's infectious. And I remember there's a Bollywood ripoff of Memento called Gajini, which is amazing. Okay, it's an amazing film. It's like what if Memento, except in the middle of it, there's an hour and a half of romantic comedy. <laughs> and I remember I sat. Rosebud and I went to see it. We sat down, and this dude who was sitting next to us was like, you know this is uh, Gajini, right? And we were like, yeah. And he goes, Amir Khan. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we love that guy. And he was like, oh, cool. And then we just all started talking about Amir Khan. <laughs> That's amazing. It was, it's such, I, I love it. It's such an experience. It's, it's joyous. But then, like, but also I'm talking about, like, the big, splashy, mainstream entertainments. But there's also, like, a lot of, a lot of contemporary Hindi cinema that kind of bucks against that. Yeah. Like, you know, the work of Anurag Kashyap, who's uh, an extraordinary director and he makes quieter and sometimes much more radical films. You know, there's, there's different sectors of each industry and, uh, and I love the audience pictures, but I also love some of the more, some of the more hard hitting stuff. Sure. I think it's easy to forget that like, because of the way our entertainment uh, system is structured like it's very easy to forget that there's stuff outside the u.s and it's very easy to forget that there are insanely diverse and incredible movies in other places yes and and i'm so thankful to have outlets to discover that stuff i'll never forget the first time i saw i know it probably has a different title in its native language but the movie robot oh yes uh did you see this is a very nerdy question <laughs> Did you see, was it called Robot or was it called Enteron? So it was called Robot. I know. And you saw the Hindi language dub of a Tamil movie where they cut out a bunch of stuff for the Hindi dub. 
Really? Oh, I didn't yes. know that it was it was not the complete version. I'll have to find the the original. But like when I saw it, like there's a point where a man becomes a, a, a robot man becomes a bigger yes. robot man of many versions of himself. Yes, that's correct. And I remember seeing this and going, "This is amazing! What the hell am I watching?" Like, yes, you know it, that kind of fascination of just being so over the top that you're kind of blown away and still sucked into it is the kind yeah. of thing that I find I don't find. As frequently. And I think a lot of people are alienated. Yeah. I think a lot of people are alienated by that level of flamboyance and unabashed go for it, like, insanity. Yeah. I think people like to sit outside of it and be kind of snarky about it. And that movie became a sensation largely because people were like, can you believe this? This is crazy. Like, this is ridiculous. But guess what? That movie star is one of the biggest movie stars in the entire world. Superstar Rajnikanth. Like, go ahead. Feel superior to the material. Just know that you're watching a legend at work. <laughs> you yeah, know exactly. And but I, but I do think that the best of those entertainments thrive on being unembarrassable. Yeah, which which I really value in entertainment. I think cool is overrated. Cool is boring. I agree. I like watching people enjoy themselves on screen and on stage. Same. There's a vulnerability to that. Hell yeah. I mean, like when I said before, I said I'm calling this stupid as a compliment. I mean that. And when I say that to someone, it's because things get so wacky. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're cool or hip. It's that you're willing to take a joke to this point of being wacky and being over the top to, to make people laugh and have a good time. And I value that kind of ridiculousness over sincerity all the time. Thank you ever so much. That's all I want. I want people <laughs> to feel as euphoric in the audience as I feel on stage. That's important to me. Yeah. I, I And it shows. And I can safely say at least... I would like least... to be a delivery system for that kind of joy. Well, I can safely say that you are. Thank you. This has been a joy. Abe, thank you so much for taking the oh, time man, to chat with me today. I, give me a break. Don't even thank me. This was <laughs> so nice to talk. <laughs> in general <laughs> yeah. well we don't have to record every conversation but I'm happy to chat with you anytime but um, I, I'm going to bring this conversation to a close um, the one last thing I'll ask you to do is we have a saying on the show which is music okay. is life and life is good it's born out of this idea back when I was doing a music review show that as long as you're making music in your world you're making art of any kind life won't ever be that bad you'll always have something you know to yes. love and to work on and so it was born out of a music show i've applied it to everything because it's my show and i decided to so if you could sign us off by saying music is life and life is good i'd greatly appreciate it my pleasure music is life and life is good that's it for this episode of crash chords autographs our theme music is by michael kill our logo was designed by case aiken and joey amans if you like the show please rate and review us on itunes and facebook you'll help us reach more listeners Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashcords.com or hit us up on Twitter at CrashCordsWeb. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque the Podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weberless.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs>